sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a troublesome new report that predicts a more extreme heat on the way for the United States. Also going to be talking about the struggle against neocolonialism on the African continent. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy. Happy to be joined by Tina Landis, an organizer and author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Tina, there was a new heat model and assessment that was published by the First Street Foundation, and it found that dangerously high temperatures could rise over the next 30 years and have a serious impact on much of the United States, especially those parts of the country where people aren't used to dealing with extreme heat. Uh, The report notes that uh, next year, more than 8.1 million residents in 50 counties could experience at least one day with the heat index above 125 degrees. And by 2053, that could grow to more than 105 million residents spanning a third of the country. And that's me quoting directly from reporting on this from USA Today. And so, I mean, it seems pretty clear, Tina, that this factors into the already uh, extreme climate situation here in the United States. And I mean, I feel like I have to mention how, you know, in the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, uh, you know, an aspect of it was basically, I understood it as a kind of protection for the same kind of fossil fuel companies that are exacerbating the the, the climate issue to begin with. And while that may be somewhat of a separate issue, I mean, it's just obvious that uh, uh, this capitalist production is continuing to harm the uh, uh, climate and it is exacerbating this issue of heat that stands to have, I think, serious consequences for a lot of people here. Yeah, I mean, there really should be a climate emergency declared. I mean, we are in such a dire situation and the the direction that we're headed is is it means an uninhabitable planet, you know, if 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 the capitalist governments and corporations of the world don't shift their policies, um, you know, and the the poorest of the world are the ones that are impacted most by this. You know, low income communities in the U.S. are the ones that are going to be hit hardest by by these heat waves and are are already being hit hardest. You know, homeless people over 130 homeless people died in one Arizona county in 2021, and that was the reported deaths. Right, I'm sure it's even higher, and that's just one county. So those most vulnerable, those most oppressed in our society, are the ones that are going to be most impacted by this. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned the the inflation reduction act it's really it's really a, a a handout to corporations as well as green lighting more fossil fuel extraction and it's the opposite of what we need it's really insane <laughs> and the, and the money that's put in is only you know even for the climate related so-called climate related funding it's only 369 billion over a decade <laughs> which is just a drop in the bucket. And really studies show that the U.S., just the U.S. needs to be spending $1 trillion annually over the next decade, every year, spending a trillion dollars to actually address this crisis. 
and there's so much that could be done, right? I mean, it's it's insane. We have the tools. Humanity has the knowledge. We have the tools to address the, the climate crisis, to really reverse it in one generation, you know, with the comprehensive action around the globe. But the capitalist governments refuse to actually take action because they want to just keep profits rolling in, right? They don't want to do anything that will hurt the corporation's right to profit because that reigns supreme above the well-being of their own population, which is, are the ones who are going to be suffering through this. Yeah, and that's what's so frustrating about, you know, this, uh, you know, investment supposedly that the government is going to be making as it concerns the climate. As you state, I think correctly, Tina, it is, I mean, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what this country should be spending every year uh, to address this serious issue. But then even that, I feel, is undermined by the protection of these companies. And I just think it shows how, you know, uh, even though we have a, a Democratic administration in uh, the White House right now. And although they make pronouncements about caring for the climate and for the environment and and things like this, it's just clear that uh, through their actions that uh, they're only more interested in in doing this kind of a political uh, jockeying game that they always engage in, which, uh, uh, you know, inevitably just further uh, uh, enshrines, if you will, the supremacy of profit in this country. And it's as if there's no real thought given to the real consequences for continuing to fail to address um, the severity of the climate situation and beyond that to actually get at the deep systemic roots of it. And I feel like I say this almost every time we speak, Tina, but it's true. It's that, you know, on the one hand, we have a far right Republican Party that denies climate change. And then we have a center right Democratic Party that basically pretends to fight for the climate and may even put up billions of dollars supposedly to fight it. But even within that, it is sort of undermined by uh, the deeper peace that uh, uh, is still uh, keeping corporations happy as, uh, you know, the vast majority of uh, poor working and oppressed people have to uh, deal with with the ravages of it. Yeah, I mean, capitalism is proving over and over (laughs) to be completely incapable of caring for people in general, much less such a big issue as climate change, such an urgent issue. You know, it can't, it just can't address these problems of society. It can't, you know, directly fund what's needed. I mean, we need direct funding to shift to renewables. Like right now, the technology exists. There's no excuse why not to, but it's incapable of doing that. Like everything in this climate bill or so-called climate bill, the IRA, you know, is like incentives for corporations to, to, you know, produce more wind turbines, to produce more solar panels, things like that, to innovate new technologies to address climate. You know, none of it's direct funding that's that's training workers in these areas. It's actually like, you know, going to guarantee that these things actually happen. Um, You know, in a socialist society, it's the complete opposite. You know, there's direct funding, you know, workers trained for what is needed by society, you know, while accounting for long-term environmental sustainability, as opposed to this free market, you know, haphazard way of looking at things and, and just hope crossing your fingers and hoping that something something good comes out of it while, of course, ensuring profits along the way. It's just I mean, it's 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 really holding back humanity. Capitalism is holding back humanity from from 
evolving and from surviving in the long run. I mean, it's really insane. The globally, they're expecting by 2100, year 2100, that half of the planet's population will be impacted by heat-related illness and death. That's how extreme the temperatures will get if we continue on this trajectory. I mean, globally, we should be like all pooling our resources to really you know, solve this. There's so much that can be done to actually address this, like just reforesting previously forested lands around the globe would draw down two thirds of the atmospheric carbon that's been emitted since the industrial revolution. That would greatly cool the climate. Just doing that one thing. And there's lots of other things we can do too: addressing agriculture, addressing oceans, restoring oceans, wetlands, all these other things. But, you know, just a reforestation program would, would draw down a lot of the carbon. Um, but, you know, even these simple things are just not being addressed because it's not profitable, right? They want to keep cutting down trees. That's more profitable than planting trees. Definitely. And, you know, there is, uh, as I think we've been alluding to, Tina, a distinct class character to all of this. I mean, there was a report that came out uh, last year from the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, that said that, you know, the greater likelihood of extreme heat and rising temperatures will put 20 percent of the U.S. labor force that works outside at risk, uh, not only for occupational illnesses, but they will also lose billions of dollars in lost wages. They say that between now and the year 2065, uh, you know, climate change Change is projected to quadruple uh, uh, the exposure of outdoor workers in the U.S. to hazardous heat conditions, which uh, puts them at risk of losing $55.4 billion of wages annually. And we're talking about 32 million people who work in these outdoor industries in different ways, such as construction, delivery services, emergency response jobs, agricultures, and things like that. And so given the fact that this all emerges out of the contradictions of the capitalist system itself, Tina, it's it's no uh, surprise then <clears throat> that the uh, sort of average working person is the is the very element that stands to lose the most from all of this. And I think just speaks to the deep need of organizing a, a movement, uh, not only for the climate, but really organizing across lines of divisions, seeing as how all of these different issues, racism, sexism, and so many other things also emerge out of the capitalist system and how there really has to be a, a mass struggle that really affect this, because I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that humanity hangs in the balance. Absolutely. Yeah. We can't look to our so-called leaders to save us. You know, they don't, they've shown time and again that they do not care about the working class. They do not care about the working class of the world, much less in this country either, you know, um, they, you know, when these disasters happen, they leave people behind. They, they, we were all left to fend for ourselves, right? Um, and it's the poorest of the world that are impacted most. And it's, it's like we need to stop looking to the top to save us, and we need to organize ourselves. We need to be, you know, in struggle together. And like you said, we need to, we need a broad, class-conscious people's movement for climate justice and for you know, against all the ills of capitalism, because they're all connected, right? It's all about the exploitation of labor, all about the exploitation of the planet that is driving us towards extinction and driving, you know, us into deeper and deeper poverty and more suffering. Um, and it's, you know, we, we have to get, we have to look at this in a holistic way and like, how can we really solve these things? And the answer is socialism, because that's really, 
you know, like I said, it really looks at what is needed for the well-being of population of the population and, and can look at the make a long-term plan. You know, like Cuba has a 100-year climate change adaptation plan, 100 years. <laughs> like, can you imagine that in any capitalist country? They can't even like, we can't even get like a two-year plan here. Um, so it's really, yeah, the system is failing us. It has always failed us and it's becoming increasingly dire now with climate change. Um, and we really have to act now and we, and we need to start by organizing in our communities and, and raising awareness that there are solutions because there are so many folks who don't understand that there are solutions to climate change. And so they just don't even want to engage on it, which I get because it's like, it's a big scary issue, but, but there are solutions and proven solutions that are happening around the world on a local level. It's just, it needs direct funding and, and like global action to implement these changes of really transforming how we live on the planet. Right. We need to end this constant exploitation of the planet. The capitalism is the driver of, and the cause capitalism is the cause of the climate crisis. Right. So we need to get rid of that in order to save ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's true that a lot of people don't think there's any solution to uh, the climate crisis and all they can you know, really seem to conceive is that we basically wait around, you know, sit and wait around for the earth to burn up. And there's a reason for that, as we often say, that what we hear, you know, in terms of the inaction from uh, the government and uh, the kind of gloom and doom messaging that we get from uh, uh, the mainstream media, I mean, it, it's a road that could only lead someone to despair uh, mentally and emotionally. And this, I think, is the importance of having, you know, a, a kind of deep uh, uh, political education around the climate issue to not only sort of talk about the problem itself uh, within its depth and scope, because as we know, it is deeply serious, but to point out not only the things that can be done, but the things that are already being done right now and pointing to the fact that we we do absolutely need a whole other new system if these things are going to be fundamentally addressed. And I agree with you, Tina, that that new system has to be a socialist system, right? It has to be a system that places the interest of humanity as the main priority in a society instead of simply generating profit. And that might sound wild to people when it's first presented. But when we look at a uh, the system that we're living under right now, this dictatorship of capital, this society where every facet of our social, political and economic life, if you will, is controlled by this uh, uh, minority of people who hoard the wealth that working people make through their labor. And we see how it has devastated the earth through its system, even though we're told it's the best system there is and that there ever could be. Well, then I think it becomes more and more clear um, about just what has to be done uh, to change those conditions. And so as things continue to move forward, and I think as people uh, see their own conditions deteriorate more and more, this presents real opportunities for organizers to take a step in and to really clarify the situation and to help build that very movement that we know is so sorely needed. Well, we thank you so much, Tina, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the struggle against neocolonialism on the African continent. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Julie Varigasi, editor of Toward Freedom. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Julie, here recently, there was a regional conference of the National Unity Platform, which is a political party in Uganda, which brought together members of Uganda's diaspora from the Washington metro and New York City areas, uh, basically to kind of put their heads together and discuss how best to fight uh, U.S. interference, uh, basically in terms of setting up these kind of puppet governments in different parts of the African continent that tend to have pretty serious uh, consequences for the people of those countries, of which I think uh, Uganda is just one. And so I'm sort of curious when we talk about this uh, 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 issue, Julie, I mean, not only were what were some of the conversations that uh, you all were having that you were able to report on, but how do you see these dynamics uh, playing out in different ways uh, on the African continent and what is the role of the U.S. in it? Um, so um, the issue that they were raising was that um, for many years, uh, the president of Uganda in particular, uh, Yori uh, Museveni, has, um, well, the government of uh, Uganda has received um, billions of dollars in aid from the United States, and it has been found to be sending in proxy forces and arms into the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which has seen a devastating consequence, which has been that millions of people in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been internally displaced. I think it's about 5.6 million people that have been displaced in the DRC. And on top of that, almost a million Congolese have been forced to take shelter across the African continent. Um, They connect this violence that's been um, spurred by these proxy forces from Uganda, but also from uh, Rwanda, with the fact that the DRC contains a lot of mineral uh, wealth. In fact, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says that... uh, uh, the DRC has tens of trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. And as a result, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce encourages U.S. companies to do business in the DRC, meaning uh, extracting those mi- uh, minerals. And, um, and a result of this mineral extraction is uh, a, a, a wide range of human rights, a wide, I would say, uh, what is it, like a kind of like a lot of human rights uh, violations as a consequence, uh, children being used to mine, etc. cetera. Uh, one NGO called Global Witness reported back in April that 90% of minerals coming out of one DRC mining area were shown to have come from mines that did not meet security and human rights standards. And a lot of U.S. companies are relying on the minerals from these mines to, do, to make their products and to do business. Companies like Apple, Intel, Tesla. And so what's what they what the people at this conference were uh, connecting was that 
Um, and it's not new information. It's new information for people in the West, perhaps, uh, who don't pay attention to what's going on in the DRC in Africa beyond what they're hearing in Western mainstream media. But this, uh, the the aid that go, the U.S. aid that goes to places like Uganda, countries like Uganda, Uganda then uh, are used to. Um, uh, some of it goes out the back door um, through lots of less what they would call corruption. The people of Uganda are left in poverty. Lots of people actually have to migrate out of Uganda to uh, live a good life. And um, and then in the meantime, Uganda essentially sends in forces and arms into the DRC to destabilize the DRC, and uh, and that. Essentially, keeps the middle extractions going in this um, in in a way that doesn't benefit the people of the DRC, and so the people of this conference were saying that they just they were trying to strategize on how to uh, address and deal with the neocolonialism that has been wrecking not only their country but other countries in Africa. Definitely, and you know one of the ways that. The United States uh, wields this kind of uh, imperial control is through weaponizing aid. And it's it's an insidious thing because, you know, aid, of course, is this money and resources that that is ostensibly um, in place to try to help uh, the people in governments of these different countries to, you know, get whatever uh, things they may need. But uh, oftentimes this aid comes with uh, a, a lot of strings attached that often requires uh, a country to almost forfeit their sovereignty simply to be able to access it. So how do we see aid playing a role in this neo-colonial process, Julie, uh, in terms of uh, Washington keeping its grips on the continent? Yeah, um, one of the speakers at this regional conference referred to Western aid as opium. Uh, and um, um, essentially, it they um, the United States finds ways to prop up people within these countries that are willing to take the money and use the money for their own benefit sometimes and uh, leave their own people behind and therefore actually keep their countries underdeveloped, uh, which is just a continuation of what happened during colonialism where uh, resources were extracted out of Africa and the colonial powers benefited who were uh, seas away or, or oceans away, but uh, the people on the ground in these countries did not benefit. So now with neocolonialism, what, what's been going on is that there's been uh, loans offered to these newly independent countries. Well, they became independent in the 50s or 60s, etc. And they, uh, well, after becoming independent, then these colonial powers come back to them and say, well, don't you need to develop your countries? Well, we can offer you some um Loans and uh, many countries took these loans, but they came with strings attached, and so it and and these loans have been difficult to pay back because of the nature of colonialism, and so what you end up having is countries that are uh, perpetually indebted. Uh, they don't have the resources to even build out their own infrastructures so that they can develop their own independent forms of um, their own independent economy that's 
separate from and doesn't rely on the colonial masters. Instead, they're continuing to be, uh, they continue to rely on um, money coming from their former colonial masters. And so um, that's why, um, and yet it's so powerful because the money is so easy to get versus having to uh, get together with your people in your country and figure out a plan to uh, how do you say, uh, develop your country using the resources that are already in place. And so that's why one of the speakers referred to Western aid as opium. Yeah. And, you know, earlier this week on the show, Julie, we were discussing um, issues around the Horn of Africa, namely uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea, and how the U.S. Uh, through legislation is threatening those countries with uh, the label of genocide. And we were discussing how um, uh, the African continent fits into the geopolitical picture more broadly uh, vis-a-vis uh, Washington and its new Cold War against China and Russia. And we saw this play out earlier this month where uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U- uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., said uh, uh, while she was in Ghana that U.S. sanctions on Russia are not to blame for uh, the global wheat shortage. I mean, basically just completely shrugging off what's just so obviously the case. Um, And so uh, when we look at how uh, neocolonialism continues to operate on the African continent, how do you see this sort of broader uh, geostrategic picture factoring into these dynamics, which, as always, seems to just lead to more suffering for people on the ground? Uh, Well, I think an interesting phenomenon has been developing recently, which is that uh, African countries and countries all around the world that normally have relied on aid from Western countries and normally have had to bow to the United States and uh, European countries, their former colonial masters, uh, after and this is all after the the dissolution of the the USSR, um, what has been the consequence has been that with the emergence of China and Russia as as powers, especially with China emerging as a, an economic power, it's able to, uh, it's essentially driving the economy of the world right now. It's the biggest global economy, if you're looking at it uh, from a different perspective, not just from GDP. But the fact that China has been so, I would say, what is so effective at, uh, at, at doing business that it's been able to, rather than go into countries and, I mean, there's been some complaints of how Chinese companies do business in Africa and elsewhere, but the fact remains that China has been building out infrastructure like highways and hospitals and uh, the African Union's headquarters, etc. Just lots of different ways to support these uh, different countries in Africa to then build out their own economies that don't rely on the West. Uh, so what's been happening is that that's been getting in the way of the uh, what what my colleague Jamal um, uh, Baraka refers to as the pan-European colonial project, which is that it never really ended, even though colonialism officially ended in the late 40s and early 50s, the actual um, the structure remains. And so China and Russia rising up and being such strong forces in the world actually creates alternative poles for countries to um, either revolve around or just uh, use as leverage when they're dealing with the, with the United States and other and European countries. And so 
with people like Linda Thomas Greenfield showing up and, and just blatantly saying that uh, U.S. sanctions are not to blame for the global wheat shortage and at the same time threatening action against African countries if they buy Russian fossil fuels, that um, you've, we've just seen African official after African official just uh, basically telling off in very polite terms uh, Blinken or uh, or anybody else who shows up just saying, you know, that you, you kind of need to like learn how to talk to us if you want to deal with us because this is not acceptable and it's not, it's not going to be tolerated anymore. Yeah, and Julie, why do you think it's important for those of us inside the United States to not only be paying attention to these dynamics and issues happening on the uh, African continent uh, vis-a-vis their relationship with the U.S. government. But why should we also get involved in this uh, struggle and this strategizing to uh, overthrow or overturn uh, this this neo-colonial era that is so uh, rapacious and so exploitative to these countries, their resources and their people? Uh, well, I, the thing is that um, the when these countries are uh, being exploited and their resources are being extracted, that that really usually happens when their countries are being destabilized by war. And war comes through arms and uh, either proxy forces or, you know, um, actual official forces from another country. But a lot of it has been happening through proxy forces. And uh, what's been going on is that a lot of the weapons in uh, these wars, like the war, the U.S. war in Afghanistan and others, what's been going on is that the arms that are not being used and the military equipment, like tanks and things that are not being used, get sent right back to the United States. And the federal government then sells them to local, state and federal police agencies. And so they're being they're using these these um, this equipment, this military equipment, these uh, guns, the arms, the rubber bullets, the flashbang grenades, all of these uh, different kinds of things that they would have been using uh, over in other countries. They're not even using them, so they're bringing them back to the United States and using them in the local population to suppress them so that they don't rise up, uh, so that they cannot rise up or, uh, or just uh, preventing them from fully uh, actualizing the uh, what they're trying to go what, what they're trying to accomplish which is that they also want people in the United States also want a, a uh, they they want control over their lives too like it's not like people in the United States are walking on uh, roads paved with gold like a lot of people uh, around the world tend to think it's actually that there's a lot of homelessness in the United States a lot of hunger in the United States as a consequence of the uh, the way that capitalism works. It's not like it only affects people everywhere else except for the United States. At this point, capitalism has been uh, has evolved to the point where it needs to eat up or cannibalize the people inside the state that the capitalism is coming out of. And so that's why it's really important for people, and that's why uh, people like Netta Freeman, who, who was a keynote speaker at the conference on Saturday, he encouraged the attendees of the conference to widen their scope of solidarity uh, beyond the other African countries uh, around Uganda to include 
Afro-descendants in Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, because they're also suffering under the same types of U.S. sanctions that keep them hungry, prevent them from accessing medicine, um, and uh, and also um, they're constantly being uh, they're constantly being threatened with invasion and or some kind of military intervention, and so uh, Nessa Freeman actually connected a lot of the events that occurred in the 50s and 60s between the assassination of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo's Patrice Lumumba, their first prime minister, with the driving into exile of uh, the Ghanaian prime minister and president, who was a revolutionary, Kwame Nkrumah. And he connected those two events with the assassinations of Malcolm X and uh, MLK, the, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., in the United States. Because at the same time there was uh, revolutionary activity occurring in Africa and around the world, there was revolutionary activity and uh, progress in the United States, which is the core of the U.S. empire. And so he referred, and he said that the reason that occurred was because internationalism is truly the Achilles heel of U.S. imperialism. When they see that all of us are making connections with people all around the world about all of our struggles. That's that's something that they cannot uh, accept. Um, they can't allow that to continue to grow because then that because the war being waged is not just military. It's not just with guns and rubber bullets. It's actually the big war that occurs is in the information war and the war uh, over people's minds. And so, if you are losing people's minds to internationalism and to international solidarity, then you are losing the war. So to deal with that, they try to assassinate so-called leaders of different movements. And so I think people are just trying to develop their movements differently, uh, grow them differently nowadays, but still there's a blueprint. There's been a blueprint for how to get free and how how to liberate global humanity. And so they're just... um, and so internationalism is, um, you could say that, that that is the blueprint. And it's just that, you know, people are just trying to get a, uh, a, a more understanding of what the U.S. state does and what global capitalism does and trying to um, analyze it and then also develop organizations to get ahead of that. And organization is what people were also encouraged to do at this um, conference was to get more and better organized. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Julie, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Uh, glad to be back. How you doing? 
Doing good, man. Doing good. And Nick, uh, it, it's been reported that Deshaun Watson, the uh, uh, controversial Cleveland Browns quarterback, will in fact be suspended for 11 games and pay a fine of $5 million, which is a record in the NFL, after the league appealed uh, the uh, six-game suspension that many thought were too lenient, of course, surrounding accusations of sexual misconduct by more than two dozen women. Uh, Watson released a, a statement uh, this week saying that he was, quote, grateful that the process was over, saying, I apologize once again for any pain the situation has caused. I take ability for this the decisions I make. Now, Watson uh, was asked by a reporter why he accepted the, the fine and the suspension, even though he's insisted all this time that he hadn't done anything wrong. He said, quote, I've always stood on my innocence and always said I've never assaulted anyone or disrespected anyone, and I'm continuing to stand on that. But at the same time, I have to continue to push forward with my life and my career. And, you know, I think a lot of people were expecting uh, this appeal to come, Nate. I believe we even spoke about it last week on the Red Spin Report. And so I'm wondering what, what you're thinking of this situation at this point. Do you think this is sort of the end of the this uh, Deshaun Watson saga? Do you think there may be some ripple effects following from this? Or uh, how are you seeing it? Yeah, it, it's a tough thing, Sean. I mean, when you look at this, I mean, what what outcome in terms of number of games, suspension, you know, I mean, what like what kind of punishment, um, you know, bestowed upon Deshaun Watson is going to like you know satisfy, you know, what cross section of the population, right? Uh, six games. I think most everybody agrees it's it's pretty light. I mean, and, and that was, uh, you know, I Sue Robinson, the former federal judge, that acted as arbitrator in the, in the first in the first case before the appeal. Uh, they, then ended up being negotiated by the NFL and the NFL Players Union. Uh, to, to this 11 games and $5 million fine at six games was too low, but the, the she cited for precedent uh, that even though she called his actions egregious, and that's a direct quote that uh, was, she felt hamstrung by you know, prior case, you know, cases and, and what didn't want to deviate too much from what the NFL had done in the past. And, you know, this is, let's be real, it's kind of a unique situation. We've had plenty of domestic violence situations, right? We've had plenty of um, kind of like traditional sexual assault cases, but this idea was like Instagram, and, you know, blurring the lines of massage therapy and, and sexual assault. And, um, and then, you know, all these cases coming from Tony Busby's office in Houston, the, the, the really famous plaintiff's attorney there. Uh, it, it really is an unprecedented case. Um, this isn't something you could really go back on. So I, I think her ruling was definitely too low. I think uh, there's certain people you'll never satisfy um, in terms of the punishment on Deshaun Watson. And I think that that's the wrong position, too. I mean, he's 26 years old. There has to be some way for him to rectify, um, you know, his mistakes and, and, and be able to you know, perform and do what he does um, and what he's capable of doing and whatnot. Um, but that comes with the caveat that he, you know, he, still, he needs to be able to show some penance, right, to, to express some remorse and, and uh, you, know, and, you know, pay penance. And um, I guess he is in a sense of like this $5 million fine, um, 11 games out of a 17-game season. But, you know, let's not forget that Cleveland Browns also very sneakily, along with you know, Watson's representation, um, structured his contract in a way to make all his pay this year, essentially signing bonus money, um, and his base salary just a little over a million dollars, which means he's only going to be losing, being docked, 
you know, about $632,000 in actual salary this year. Um, so they, they were anticipating this, um, and they, they really structured the contract in a way. This, let's not forget, this is the first contract in NFL history um, that is a fully guaranteed deal. I mean, these are that's the standard in Major League Baseball. Um, that's the way it works. In the NFL, it's always been this is the contract usually two, three years into it. They get you to restructure or something to uh, move money around. There's all sorts of ways you can like make certain things bonuses instead of salary, get around the salary cap to try to you know, keep a competitive balance, but there's, there was going to be no outcome, you know, on this on that was like going to please everybody. And I don't know, aside from just, just throwing him away and saying he's never going to play again. That's not the answer. I think it's very reasonable to say a full season though. And uh, I think it's very understandable why people are, you know, outraged that, you know, the call for one full season for sexual assault, uh, for the, the 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 claims that that you know, let's not forget more than 24 women abroad, he settled what 23 to 24 cases, and there's been up to 66 allegations. Um, we found out through the investigate investigative process. So I don't think it's unreasonable at all to call for a full season and um, you know a five million dollar fine when he's going to be bringing in north of 40 million this year, potentially 45 pre-tax. Uh, you know, is not really that severe. So here we are again with another situation. And, um, you know, again, the right answer, it's difficult to say. I think he, um, it falls a little short. He needed the punishment needs to be there, but really the, the, the major problem is that Deshaun Watson still in his mind, um, thinks he's only apologizing to people that were triggered about the news. And he used that word, um, you know, instead of like the actual people that he harmed, that, you know, people that, you know, this brought up, memories of sexual assault and, and, and their, their own hauntings of, you know, their own past trauma with that experience. So there's still a lot in the court of public opinion. I mean, I've heard stories, anecdotes of a, of a woman in Jacksonville, Florida, a lifelong Cleveland sports fan who, that she's abandoned the Browns as her team as a result of this. I don't think that's, that, that, that's common in, Cle- in Cleveland. I mean, most people are, are so dying for a winner. They're rallying around him. Uh, looking at his jersey sales will be a good barometer of how well the public's responding um, because, uh, you know, they haven't been up to where you would think, you know, they would be for someone, a free agent signing of his stature for understandable reasons. So um, this saga has uh, still got a long way to go in terms of how Deshaun Watson is able to resurrect himself if he is um, and whether he'll ever, you know, actually face the music and kind of own up to his own actions and, 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 and accept accountability. Yeah, it definitely felt like I'm sorry if this made you feel a certain kind of way as opposed to I'm sorry for my actions, which is certainly an unfortunate uh, tone to take, to say the very least. And Nate, what do you make of how the Cleveland Browns as an organization handled this whole uh, whole thing? I mean, you talked about the sort of uh, sneaky way that they restructured his, his contract. And I mean, obviously, Deshaun Watson was a grand investment for them that they were really hoping paid off in dividends in a number of ways. And certainly they were not expecting this kind of a monkey wrench to be thrown in. I mean, it's just a straight up scandal that they had on their hands. And so, I mean, what is your sort of analysis of how they behaved uh, throughout this whole uh, incident? Well, I mean, it just shows it's all about the bottom line, the bottom line. You know, the Cleveland Browns have a roster that is very, uh, you know, chock full of talent in a lot of positions now ready to compete, you know, and then they felt that Baker Mayfield was deficient 
um, in some respects at the quarterback position have regressed last year and really felt they bring in a quarterback of Watson's caliber. Let's not forget he, he also sat out all of last season uh, while demanding a trade from the Houston Texans. Uh, but it also does send a signal around the league, too, that um, ultimately, you know, you know, being able to acquire a quarterback, being able to, 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 you know, we will look past these things when push comes to shove. If, uh, you know, if, if you're somebody that, that, that can be that franchise quarterback. Now, I think that they, they weren't blindsided in the sense they thought there was not going to be a suspension. I think part of the thing they are culpable because, you know, they knew a lot of this. They made the decision to pursue him and, and to make the trade with the Houston Texans following the second grand jury's decision not to bring criminal charges. And we all know that just because you know you can't meet the threshold for a criminal prosecution sometimes does not at all mean that uh, there's uh you know that, that nothing wrong was done it just means that uh sometimes like in, you know the, and also with grand juries the politics that are involved in that but it also just you're talking about bringing a case in criminal court i mean the threshold is much higher in theory at least than uh you know we know it doesn't work out that way in practice for working class folks around this country and especially in black and brown communities and uh, and whatnot, but in theory, the, the threshold for criminal prosecution should be much higher than, like, say, civil liability. Uh, we all know O.J. Simpson, for instance, was held liable for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and, and Ron Goldman, but was found not guilty in criminal court. Is a, a good case in point. But um, you know, th- th- I think that the Browns, um, you know, were cynical operators here. That they they they're dying to win. It's been a long time, and uh, they were willing to accepted they thought they would get him back at some point this season uh maybe not 11 games but uh that still gives them six games of the regular season if Jacoby Brissett can keep them in you know in contention Watson can come back and not be too rusty uh you know they could still you know execute their their plan for the season potentially so it's not even all lost for just 2022 so I think that's what's rubbing some people the wrong way and uh but I also think that there was it must be said that you know there was there's going to be certain people, and understandably so, that especially been traumatized by sexual assault, whatnot. They, they, no amount of punishment was going to be sufficient because what you're saying is that you know sport rises above the importance of uh, you know the the, the trauma um, that the victims have experienced. Definitely. And switching gears a little bit here to collegiate sports, the NAACP, excuse me, the NAACP, the NCAA officials sent a a letter to its membership this week, uh, basically asking for assistance in investigating violations of name, image and likeness uh, uh, regulations, saying that uh, the NCAA enforcement staff is, quote, actively investigating potential abuses of NIL transactions and will allege any substantiated concerns as soon as possible, adding, quote, our focus is not on targeting student athletes, but rather the actors who pose a threat to the integrity of college sports. Now, um, this NIL uh, uh, rule, if you will, really came into effect around 2020 when the NCAA lifted its ban um, on student athletes earning money from endorsements and sponsorship deals and things like that, meaning that finally there seemed to be a path for these student athletes to actually make some kind of money for all the work that they put in generating incredible profits for these universities. But what do you make of uh, uh, this uh, move from the NCAA and do you think it will it may have any impact on uh, NIL here? Yeah, I don't think it's going to have a big impact on, on these NIL deals. I mean, we haven't really dove into like the, how this is playing out in practice, name, image, and likeness deals. 
Uh, this has transformed the recruiting world. I mean, I think we did the, at least talk about the Jimbo Fisher, head coach of Texas A&M, feud with, with Alabama head coach Nick Saban a few months ago, which all had to do with Nick Saban just uh, remarking that, that you know Texas A&M bought their number one ranked recruiting class this this season and using uh, what they call a collective. What these schools are doing is uh, building collectives amongst boosters um, that are pulling money together to you know put together these sort of sponsorship deals that many times like you know this is where the gray area with NCA is aligned and where this article ties in is that the NCA has this is the wild west and they've completely lost control. And their whole, you know, raison d'etre, you know, of w- what they do has been to kind of discipline, control, to regulate, to avoid uh, too much like player empowerment to keep it, uh, uh, to keep things kind of keep the ship steady, and uh, and also just to exist. I mean, like many bureaucracies, is to, to kind of just find a reason to keep existing sometimes. Um, and they uh, they are trying to find a way to regulate this, and where they're doing this is like in going after what they claim are the unscrupulous like uh, agents, the unscrupulous like businesses that are exploiting these uh, you know quote unquote student athletes, and you know that certainly does exist. There, there's certainly a, a lot of you know grifters out there that are finding ways to try to latch on to this new market that's open. It is admittedly not very regulated. You have you know, on on paper. Schools are not allowed to use NIL as an inducement to get you to sign to come to that school. They can show you their whole program of like, if you come here, you'll have access to you know, the, you know, this car dealership and these businesses and these people here, and they can become business mentors for you and build relationships. You can make money, but it's not supposed to be like, hey, we're going to throw you, you know, 200 G's here. You sign on the dotted line. All right. So I think the NCA is like trying. I think they think they're going to try to come up with direct evidence but i mean the cat is out of the bag this is them like i mean i guess if someone makes a really stupid mistake and you know doesn't cover their tracks at all um you know and it's very obvious they, they could maybe crack come down and and try to you know maintain their their relevance but i think we're moving towards the the super profitable conferences and we see this with this new big 10 tv deal with fox nbc and cbs worth more than a billion annually more than doubling you know, the, the, the previous contracts they've had of like 400 something million annually in revenue is going to be coming into the Big Ten once USC and UCLA join in 2024. That uh, that that this is a whole like new ball game money wise, and, and we potentially see even a breakaway from the NCAA from the uh, with the the mega conferences, the super you know elite, um, like maybe the Big Ten, the SEC, and some combination of the other three Power Five conferences. Um, is where we're looking. And, you know, how does that fit with capitalism? Usually we have a tendency towards monopolization over time, and we're seeing that play out in college sports. And what that means for the rest of college sports, the Olympic sports that, you know, don't get bringing the same eyeballs and TV viewership and whatnot, you know, it's probably not the best for them. But, uh, you know, there's um, – I don't see the – I see the NCAA, get, you know, just grasping to hold on to relevancy here. Yeah, and uh, I also feel like we've been seeing <clears throat> a, a series of stories here lately, Nate, uh, about Cuban baseball players. And we even talked recently about um, this guy who, whose job it basically was to help, you know, smuggle players uh, from Cuba to the United States so they can play in the MLB. But I feel like with so many uh, uh, issues in the way that Cuba is covered in the United States and in the West, it leaves out the, the crucial aspect of this 
this uh, blockade, uh, this criminal unilateral blockade directed by the U.S. that Cuba has been living under for over half a century that impacts this all uh, as well. And so, you know, how are we seeing that coverage play out in terms of the Cuban uh, baseball players and what kind of context do you think is missing here? The context is missing. It's just what you said. It's the blockade. It's the fact that, you know, no matter what countries the U.S. has had beef with for years and decades, uh, there's no specific, there's no, there's no parallel to Cuba. I mean, there aren't the kind of uh, just total blockade embargo. You don't have this with Venezuelan players, for instance, right? Uh, the MLB is, is chock full of Venezuelan players, despite, you know, Venezuela being clearly, um, you know, not on good terms with the United States, and but with Cuba, because of the audacity of the Cuban Revolution, the way that the way the um, you know U.S. leadership sees it, um, they have to be punished sort of as a symbol, much like Haiti was punished as a symbol of you know uh, you know what ha- what will happen to you if you rise up against sort of the, the collective West you know order, and in that case, rising up against France. I think mean, Cuba's being punished much in that same way, and that that context is left out because we do have a a new documentary coming out today, premiering in theaters today, called The Last Out. The Miami Herald has a piece on all about, the, you know, really the trials, tribulations, Cuban baseball players, um, you know, profiling a guy, happy, oh, happy uh, uh, Oliveros, and, um, you know, many other players that play in the, the Cuban National League, the, the Serie uh, Nacional, uh, that goes from, like, you know, the late late summer into early January, into January, Every year, they're they're basically their their national league. But what's happening is, you know, you have the in the the possibility of making it big in the big leagues. Um, you have the threat, though, of you know the fa- the fact that the re- I mean, the reason a lot of people look at Cuba and say, "Why don't they just let players go?" Well, it's not that simple. There's not diplomatic relationships. I mean, even the opening that happened during the Obama administration was slammed shut during the Trump administration with Cuba, and you have a a system now that the only way you can live out your dreams of playing major league baseball is to either just choose disloyalty to your country or to just not, not pursue it. And it's a shame because, uh, you know, the Venezuela for all the issues that and contentions within the U S U S Venezuelan relations, uh, you don't have the same situation, nor do you do with Nicaragua. Who's also not a big friend of, of, of the U S but with Cuba, there's this, there's this embargo and, uh, there's a huge political lobby, as you know, in our home state of Florida that makes it essentially politically untenable for any politician in the, in the Florida legislature to even you know, broach this topic, much less the, the, the U.S. government, where that would need to happen on a federal level. So we're left with this system that empowers these, these coyotes, drug traffickers, human traffickers as the only potential people, or just this guy that's profiled um, in a piece um, published in Sports Illustrated a couple of weeks ago. Who's, I mean, maybe not like, he's just kind of probably not a very political guy, but Billy Henderson, who former, you know, cop who goes and, 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 you know, helps athletes defect for the Cuban national team while they're on U.S. soil playing in tournaments. And uh, they have a whole profile of his, like, you know, trying to help a player make it out of uh, uh, a West Palm Beach hotel. And it's like a, it's like a reading a spy sort of like, you know, short story. And, uh, I recommend people go check it out. It's called the Extraction Sports Illustrated piece from July 20th. Um, and uh, so that's where we are. It is all about the embargo. And that's left out of all these stories. And it's going to definitely be like really left out as a, as a prominent reason in this uh, latest The Last Out documentary. Uh, it will not feature, it might mention it in passing, 
but it'll be mainly about the repressive uh, nature of the Cuban government that's cruel and mean. And uh, and and then now you know, maybe U.S. officials need to do more, but not in any way challenging them on the embargo question, just like do more to help Cuban baseball players narrowly. And I think that that's the problem. We're instead looking at this Cuban baseball player issue as something that's like a tip of the iceberg of a much larger problem facing all the Cuban people. But, you know, for the people that are really pushing this issue in the U S that are Cuban Americans and putting the pressure on it, it's really about just, you know, how do we narrowly affect this like group of exceptionally talented individuals um, and you know that 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 misses the picture. That misses the mark in, in the big picture. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, August 19th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik dot mave that's m-a-v-e dot digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time each weekday and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on rumble live right now that's rumble.com slash c slash b-a-m necessary the chat is live and remember friends at 3 20 p.m eastern today you can call us at 202-521-1320 that's 202-521-1320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we want to hear from you we most certainly do we most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by mr james early former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. 
Absolutely. And Mr. Early, I wanted to start today by uh, discussing some Latin American news, uh, namely the fact that uh, uh, Venezuelan president uh, Nicolas Maduro has named uh, uh, the new ambassador to Colombia, as well as the uh, Colombian administration of Gustavo Petro, Francia Marquez, uh, naming their ambassador to Venezuela. And this is pretty important uh, in terms of reestablishing um diplomatic ties between the two countries as the Venezuelan government uh, broke off its diplomatic ties with Colombia back in February of uh, 2019 after then-Colombian President Ivan Duque uh, joined in with Washington's regime change efforts in Venezuela, uh, joining in support of Juan Guaido as the quote-unquote and self-declared interim president of Venezuela, though he had no legitimacy whatsoever. And I think particularly given that and also given kind of the historic role of uh, Colombia in the region. I mean, I believe it was Hugo Chavez that said Colombia is the Israel of the region. And so I'm just wondering how you see this as relevant, both in terms of the relations between Venezuela and Colombia and what it may mean for uh, 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 Latin America as a whole. Well, this is a most um, significant step for the two nations uh, with regard to their bilateral relations and uh, the uh, impact that um, not having diplomatic relations uh, has had on both countries. Uh, there is a lot of talk uh, from the U.S. and right-wing conservatives uh, coming out of uh, Venezuela and out of uh, Colombia about the outward migration uh, the sort of forced economic migration of Venezuelans, as well as uh, Latin Americans across the continent um, from uh, the southern agricultural-based countries, less developed countries, towards uh, the industrial north of uh, the U.S. Um, that is a migration pattern that happens not only with respect to Latin America and the Caribbean towards the U.S., but people are coming all the way from the continent of Africa, of Syria and other places to come to Mexico and the like. So uh, establishing uh, normal, uh, formal diplomatic relations uh, relieves uh, some pressure on both countries as what is not uh, readily talked about or known or acknowledged is uh, many, many Colombians who have migrated uh, to uh, Venezuela. And so this will allow them to open up their border and to establish a more stable uh, relationship between the two countries, uh, major trading partners of one another. Uh, secondly, uh, it also uh, it has the potential impact to minimize the threat of U.S. Uh, imperial uh, warmongers against uh, Venezuela and are the less of Latin America, as the United States has seven military bases uh, in Colombia, and they are a major threat to self-determination and independence and sovereignty. Uh, of those nations. And so uh, that the Petro uh, Marquez government has made it clear uh, that it will establish complementary uh, 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 relations uh, uh, with its neighbors. And it bodes very well for CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean Nations, uh, which is on a march uh, towards the integration of Latin America and the Caribbean to uh, be a zone of peace and to um, be mutual trading partners, and it explicitly excludes uh, the United States and Canada uh, in order to have that regional integrity 
even as the great majority of those countries uh, maintain and will maintain uh, their bilateral relations both with Canada and the United States. So uh, this is a very, very important development. Let me just add one additional factor here, and that is uh, that the Petro Marcus government has moved very, very uh, quickly in establishing uh, an exchange of ambassadors with Venezuela. But it has also sent an ambassador to Cuba to open up discussions about the FLMN, one of the, the, the last really outstanding uh, guerrilla uh, uh, warfare group uh, to set up uh, discussions in order to reach a peace accord uh, along the lines that was reached uh, with the FARC, in which uh, Socialist Cuba played a central uh, role in hosting those meetings and facilitating those meetings. Uh, so all around, this is a very, very important uh, diplomatic move on the part of the new Colombian government of, uh, of uh, Petro and, uh, and Marquez. You know, of course, we don't have a crystal ball, but I am glad that you brought up how swiftly the Petro uh, and uh, Marquez government is moving to establish diplomatic ties across the global south, across the region, because the issue in uh, Venezuela or at the Venezuelan-Colombian border of femicide has been an issue for uh, a while. Uh, and, it, and it, of course, emanated from Colombia, from the very right-wing uh, militia groups and some of the military and some of the police. So that now there is a question, I think, of how this new government will handle those police forces, those military forces, those, what are they going to do with these, you know, I won't, I can't even call them rogue groups, but these militia groups that have caused so much uh, uh, chaos and have killed particularly women uh, along the border. How do you see these diplomatic relations affecting that issue in particular, Mr. Early? Well, that is always an outstanding question in the taking of state power by uh, civil society groups who elect uh, stewards of governance to represent them, uh, in which there is a standing military, and particularly a standing military that has long historical ties uh, with the United States government. Uh, the United States government, uh, through the formally through several military bases in the Republic of Panama, just um, down the up the road, so to speak, on the isthmus uh, from Colombia, where for many, many decades uh, the United States government trained uh, military forces throughout Latin America, as well as police forces throughout Latin America, including some uh, police forces even as far away as the continent of Africa. So this is an outstanding question. Very significantly, in the last several days, uh, the administration of Petro Marquez has moved again very deliberately to replace, I think, as many as 20 senior military officials. Uh, and while I have not seen a qualitative analysis along the lines of uh, ideological affinities or particular roles uh, in dealing uh, with uh, uh, vigilante groups and the like, um, one would think that this is the intent is to get better control uh, of the use of official violence uh, at the level of the military and at the level of the police. And the Petro Marquez government has been explicitly calling uh, for stability, peace, for love, for collaboration.
integration, um, uh, not only within uh, Colombia, uh, but with its, its neighbors. So I think it remains to be seen how effective the change in uh, military personnel and to what extent they will be able to penetrate the, the police. But it is an outstanding question with these paramilitaries who are tied into uh, uh, narcotic gangs, as well as the fascist uh, Alvarez uh, uh, Uribe, a former president who is still a right-wing powerhouse and very close uh, to elements of uh, both the Democratic and the Republican Party here in the United States. So it's going to be a, 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 a diplomatic uh, tightrope on the part of this new government in Colombia to, to be able to handle and to, to, to ring in uh, uh, these, uh, these uh, illegal forces, these extra-legal forces, both in the police, the military, uh, the drug cartels, uh, and, and, and the like. But he is, the government is moving very deliberately in that direction, it would appear. Definitely. And uh, uh, turning our attention elsewhere in the region, Mr. Early, there was uh, an opinion poll in Brazil done by a company named Datafolha, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, released this week, estimating that uh, Lula da Silva, of course, former president of Brazil and uh, former political prisoner of the Workers' Party of Brazil, has 47 percent of the voting intentions and is seen as of this moment as the front runner in that country's upcoming presidential elections, with them estimating that Lula would receive 51% of the ballot votes cast, which, if that actually happens, would mean a victory for Lula in the first round. Of course, the sitting president, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, only got 32% of that support, excuse me, of that support, 15 points behind Lula. In terms of what they call valid votes, he would reach 35%. Now, it really feels like Brazil is heading towards a real uh, a serious moment in terms of where it will head politically in the coming period, Mr. Early, as, I mean, it seems like we're watching uh, something unfold uh, that a lot of us figured would be the case following Lula's uh, release from imprisonment. And as a result, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who's uh, also known as the Trump of the tropics, has uh, basically been threatening uh, his own kind of January 6th style of uh, attack on the electoral process within Brazil uh, in order to remain in power and possibly to shield him uh, from some kind of prosecution. And so, you know, uh, what do you uh, think sort of about the prospect of Lula regaining the presidency of Brazil, especially given the fact that we've seen something of a wave lately of a progressive and left-leaning governments recently take office in Latin America, including uh, Colombia, as we just noted, in uh, Chile, in Honduras, and so on. So, I mean, how are you seeing it? Well, these developments in Brazil are most significant, certainly within the country, but across Latin America and South America, uh, as uh, Brazil is like the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world, just under about uh, 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 two, just under two trillion dollars of gross national uh, product, uh, one of the most unequal societies uh, in the world, as in the, one of the most unequal regions in the world, uh, despite its significant role in the BRICS countries—Brazil, Russia, India, China—in uh, the advancement of South-South relations, uh, which have taken on a new amplification with regard to intersection with China, uh, as well as with Russia and the emergence of a, a multipolar world now in which the U.S. 
uh, NATO alliance uh, while threatening can is not uh, the uh, omnipresent dominant force that it, it once was. Uh, there is much concern inside of Brazil about the Trump Trumpist Bolsonaro fascist racist homophobic uh, orientation uh, that has brought great devastation on the climate with regard to the Amazon, uh, which has emboldened the police and the military, and in which one one concurrent member of the military has spoken publicly uh, in an anti-communist fashion. And uh, there is uh, this threat to not uh, represent, not accept the outcome of the election if they lost, already questioning the, the viability of the electoral machines and whatnot. About 800,000, over 800,000 Brazilians in recent weeks were out in the streets calling for the preservation of democracy. Uh, last week, uh, I was contacted by the office of Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, who also raised the issue of concern of the preservation of democracy uh, and, and basically uh, support of the progressive uh, citizenry and their uh, election uh, movement there that would remove uh, this dangerous element in, in Bolsonaro. So what what is uh, uh, will occur in Brazil in October are this election with the possibility of uh, Lula, who is now running at double digits ahead, uh, but that is tightening. Uh, it, it, he could be uh, a first-round winner, as you know, with 51%. There could be a runoff, but it appears, all things being equal, that he will be the next president of Colombia. In that context, of then the reemergence of what is referred to as the pink tide are basically social democracy policies, um, of the kinds of policies that we see among democratic socialists here in the United States. A very important development uh, to fight uh, the fascist authoritarian tide uh, that has gripped Brazil in particular and that has gripped places like Colombia. Uh, we must keep in mind that this is social democracy policy representing the broad and deep aspirations of the majority of the people. It is not uh, in the in an imminent revolutionary transformation. In the case of Colombia, Petro has said explicitly uh, his his goal is not to overturn uh, capitalism, but to preserve uh, democracy for the masses of the people uh, to provide the kind of well-being uh, that they need and to establish uh, a ground of peaceful coexistence. And from that, looking into the future, then other transformative or more systemic transformative uh, uh, political goals might, might be sought. So it is a very important development in the region in general and with uh, Brazil in particular, uh, which uh, really is a flagship uh, for South-South relations and for the integration of Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and its connect connections uh, to the continent of Africa, for example, in which former Lula governments have played a significant role in developing relationships with Africa. There is a strong cultural uh, background there. Uh, over 51% um, of the self-identified voters in Brazil, according to the official census, um, identify themselves as black or mixed race. Uh, Lula has uh, been very emphatic that the face of poverty uh, in Brazil is the face of women, and particularly the face of black women. That is almost a direct quote from Lula himself. So uh, his potential election bodes very, very well. The Bolsonaro government, on the other hand, is now 
uh, putting a lot of money uh, in welfare uh, programs in these last months uh, and trying to siphon off a, a popular opinion here. But it would appear that Lula will, should win that election in October, and it bodes very, very well for the Brazilians as well as for the region overall. Let me just tack on one last thing in this context, because uh, from an ideological point of view, we get very excited about uh, social democracy or the pink tide or the search for alternatives um, and 21st century uh, plural socialism, as in the case of being pursued in, in Cuba, uh, as the state is pursuing in the case of uh, Venezuela, uh, places like uh, Nicaragua. I recently interviewed, actually earlier this week, uh, Maria uh, uh, Givina Lopez, uh, a member of the movement of landless people whose father was indigenous uh, mother, uh, Afro-descendant from northeastern Brazil, where the great majority of Afro-descendant Brazilians live. And I asked her explicitly a question uh, about Lula and what she would say to the Lula government. And she said it is very important to be supportive of Lula coming to power again but that the Lula government and the Workers' Party must change its mode of operation and work in direct and consistent collaboration with organized citizens and not just from a state perspective. This is an emerging discussion throughout Latin America of the role of organized civil society, not just in the role of parties, but in terms of social movements, as we have seen with the historic facts uh, inside Colombia, which is significantly made up of social movements in addition to traditional kinds of progressive or left-wing political parties. So uh, while we are very excited about the possibilities of Lula emerging as a new president of Brazil, and I spent time with Lula over the last 30 years or so, visited him on a, on a few occasions at the Lula Foundation or in his former role as president, and Danny Glover and I went to see him when he was in prison, although I was unable to go in on that day because they only allowed two people, uh, the former uh, former president of uh, who succeeded Lula, Dilma Rousseff and Danny Glover, went to see him. We have maintained communication. So I, too, am very excited from the point of view of solidarity. But I do agree with this representative from the movement for landless people that we have to see a turn in the behavior of not just taking state power from the vantage point of political parties, but what is the role of a participatory democracy and active citizenship dealing in the formation of policy, not just being the recipients of policy? Definitely. And real quick, where can we find that interview, Mr. Early? Uh, that interview, uh, I, I think, will be published uh, on YouTube in October. Um, it is the last of uh, uh, 10 interviews, that a uh, series of 10 that I've done with the People's Forum in New York, uh, and that series can be found. Uh, on YouTube, uh, if you just put in People's Forum, James Early, New World Coming, uh, the uh, first eight of those interviews will come up. And in October are the last two interviews, which includes the one uh, with Maria Jovina Lopez uh, from the Movement for Landless People, who will be there. So I hope people will look at those as it looks very much at the intersection of issues of race and class and other kinds of uh, progressive identity politics uh, as an organic part of working class uh, organization and struggle. Absolutely. Highly recommend people check out New World Coming. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And Mr. Early, we left off talking about the importance of deepening and strengthening and making more robust this uh, powerful concept of participatory democracy within the context of Brazil. And I also wanted to raise uh, uh, on that note about how we recently marked the 96th anniversary of Cuban revolutionary and leader uh, Fidel Castro. And you're keen to remind us, uh, Mr. Early, and I think rightfully so, that when we look at the different figures, uh, I think throughout Latin America and even throughout the world, different revolutionary figures and people who are considered heroes um, that were able to come to power and really have a a transformative impact on the societies uh, where they are, is that they didn't sort of ascend in an individual sense. In other words, they didn't get there all by themselves or simply by their own merits and talents, but actually as the result of social movements and the result of broad mass support, which certainly uh, Fidel Castro enjoyed uh, throughout his tenure and time there. And so uh, uh, what I'm thinking, particularly when we see about how Cuba continues to operate today, I mean, they recently finalized uh, their version of their family code, which to my understanding seemed like it opened the path to um, gay marriage in the country. And you can correct me if I'm wrong with that. But, you know, this process. And I was fortunate enough to see the the tail end of uh, uh, Cuba amending its constitution when I had the opportunity to visit there a few years ago. There's like this long, very thorough, very deliberate sort of conversation about these things at every level. I mean, it felt to me like a kind of uh, participatory uh, democracy in action, completely unlike what we see here in the United States. And as I say, every single time I build this up, I mean, I couldn't help but uh, uh, feel a tinge of jealousy that they even had the opportunity to amend the Constitution, which is not something that is even entertained here in uh, the so-called citadel of a democracy and things like that. And so when we see how countries like Cuba and others continue to develop this concept of uh, a participatory democracy to this very day. It it doesn't seem like something that um, they feel they've accomplished, but rather something they continue to work on. I mean, how do you see the role of the Cuban people writ large and leaders like Castro um, uh, in general in terms of how these processes unfold and how to get the most benefit from that to the people? I think, as you have pointed out, this is a fundamentally important question, uh, one that, in the and as I would understand, the history of the Cuban Revolution uh, has been distorted uh, by the constant uh, economic warfare, threat of regime change, attempts at assassination, uh, poisoning of livestock, uh, bombing of hotels, 
uh, by the part of a bipartisan uh, Democratic and Republican uh, Party administrations uh, in in cahoots, in direct uh, collaboration with known terrorists, uh, Cuban terrorists who are living in Miami and other fascist uh, Latin Americans uh, who extend uh, their reign from places like Colombia and Venezuela uh, into uh, the Miami area, uh, which is the center of the most dangerous uh, reaction and threat against the sovereignty and independence of nations from the vantage point of an organized terror, terrorist a grouping of citizens in which the CIA historically has had a small uh, private companies with planes and boats and, and uh, the like. So the Cuba process has always been distorted uh, by this consistent uh, war state, if you will, uh, certainly from the vantage point of an economic war that has constrained them uh, in the development of the relationship between elected stewards of governance and the ongoing uh, organization of citizens, citizens in defense of the revolution, uh, the Federation of Women, uh, uh, farmers, uh, the uh, young people, the Communist, uh, Communist Youth League, and the like in Cuba. But what we have seen in the midst of this warfare and Cuba facing the worst crisis that it has faced since the fall of the Soviet Union uh, in terms of being able to get uh, basic uh, foodstuffs, um, fuel, uh, bread, uh, and other uh, basic staples of life, they have nevertheless uh, advanced in the role of an active, organized citizenship in relationship to its elected stewards of governance. And Cuban officials are elected. They're elected in a different way than in the United States, as as many other countries in the Americas and across the Caribbean elected their representatives differently from the way that representatives elected here in the United States. In that context, uh, we're seeing um, the, the, the spread of communication, for example, between organized citizens and their stewards of governance, where uh, every elected official is, is required uh, to have Internet access to be able to engage citizens, particularly during the period of the dangerous uh, of the pandemic. Uh, we're seeing on the case of race, for example, any number of uh, citizen organizations uh, who are engaging the government as well as the government uh, setting up uh, organizations to engage the citizens about both the legacies of racism and the uh, new constructions of racism for various reasons uh, inside Cuban socialism. So it is an honesty to face up to the contradictions. Uh, the limits on, on governance were an elected official at the highest level can only serve two five-year terms. Uh, is another example of how to replenish uh, the vantage point and experiences and aspirations of a young population as it moves forward uh, by not having octogenarians occupy for an extended period. Uh, the stewards, uh, the, as, as we see, for example, in the Democratic Party with some of these octogenarians who, uh, who have been uh, occupied in that party or, or the Republican Party here in the U.S. So that dynamic of citizen activity is being discussed across Latin America, because I think it's important for us to face the fact that the notion of a political class is not just a bourgeois capitalist notion. Uh, it can also be the notion of party members staying in power too long uh, and not replenishing with a younger generation uh, and not uh, separating, as the Cubans have been very conscious in the last, I would say, uh, 15 years, 
to have more open discussion about the distinction between the communist between the citizens, between the communist party, and between the government. And while there are intersections because they all come out of the same Cuban household, uh, young women and young men who grew up in statecraft. Uh, nevertheless, their responsibilities in society vis-a-vis the citizen, uh, where the citizen is the pivot, is more and more the discussion. Uh, very important in the case of Cuba, given it that it has one, as I've cited before on this program, according to the United Nations, uh, one of the most educated populations of the world, uh, which is uh, expressed uh, very significantly for the rest of humanity in its biotechnical programs in which uh, five um, um, uh, vaccines uh, against these new viruses uh, and other kinds of uh, medical advancements that they're making that are being shared with the rest of the world, not just not just the rest of the developed world. So this is the context in which the discussion of participatory democracy and the commentary by Maria um, uh, uh, Jovina Lopez from the Movement for Land of People in Brazil referring to the challenges before a hopeful new Workers' Party government of Lula da Silva and and Brazil. And we're seeing that discussion throughout. Yeah, and it's, you know, when we talk about Cuba, Mr. Early, and this 50-year, more 50-plus year criminal, inhuman, uh, illegal uh, blockade against the entirety of the country, the whole of the population, those medical advances are even more astounding to me. I mean, because, you know, it was one thing, you know, to, to hear about it, but to go to Cuba and to visit the, the, the medical facilities and to see, I mean, they are so excited. The Cuban medical establishment, and, and it's weird saying that because it's not even, it's not a medical establishment in the way we understand it in this capitalist system. But they are so, the doctors are so proud of the work they are doing for the people that they will gladly just share presentations about all of their, uh, you know, uh, procedures and, and uh, you know, medicines that they have developed, uh, practically eliminating the need for amputations, for people who have diabetes. There's another treatment that almost literally regrows uh, uh, atrophied uh, uh, flesh from uh, uh, diabetes uh, uh, damage. And now, I mean, Cuba continues to uh, advance and, and provide just amazing things for the people. They have they have reached and and a stride in Alzheimer's treatment uh, that is just it, it's it's called neural sim. It's for nasal use. Um, it it's it's said to prolong the life of cells of the nervous system a little more, so the symptoms are more spaced out and the disease doesn't progress so rapidly. This is what Cuban neurologist Hector Vera. Questra uh, told uh, a publication, I mean, you would think, Mr. Early, that people in this country who everyone is going to get older, we are all going to experience some kind of health issues, and some of our elderly family members experience Alzheimer's and dementia. You would think that people would be clamoring for this treatment in this country but because of the demonization of Cuba that is so complete, they don't even know about it. 
and 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 quite literally they don't care and this is something that could change the lives of millions of people in this country and i i do wonder aside from doing what we're doing right now i ask this all the time but in light of the kinds of advances cuba is making for the benefit of all of humanity how do we push farther to at least get this kind of uh, 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 medical advancement uh, to people here so that maybe that would be a way for people to think twice (laughs) and a few other times about what this government says about what Cuba is and what they do. Well, you you have cited a very, very strong case uh, for why we need to intensify uh, initiatives on the part of citizens and elected officials here in the United States government to confront the immoral, uh, the unethical, uh, the inhumane, uh, the vicious policies uh, that uh, have been upheld and implemented by both Republicans and Democrats in the United States government, and their imprisonment, if you will, of U.S. citizens. Um, from going 90 miles off the shores of Florida to see for ourselves what is the big issue here in Cuba, where we would see that humanity in full flow in a very underdeveloped country, uh, struggling with very limited national resources, but within an extraordinary profundity of goodwill towards one another and goodwill to citizens around the world and sharing uh, their development, their technological health development uh, with the rest of the world out of their responsibility for the advancement of humanity. It is as basic as that. And yes, there is remuneration that comes to the doctors and that comes to the state uh, that has provided the educational training for them. But it is minimal. It is almost minuscule compared to the deep reservoir of humanity that is expressed in Cuban society to help other people around the world when there is inclement weather, uh, uh, when there are fires or whatever. The Cubans are always there uh, with the human resources that they have developed in order to meet those higher standards. This is a result of the huge, extraordinary thinking uh, of Fidel Castro, who in my view was a basic humanist. Uh, a person who was about what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust, Um, not someone who was interested in the power of the weapon or nuclear weapon, but in the power of humanity and dedicated themselves to it so that, you know, their major international uh, participation in settling a, a, a conflict of war was against apartheid. Uh, in Southern Africa, uh, and so that we have got to get U.S. citizens to take advantage of the small loopholes we have, travel to Cuba. Uh, there, You can go online and you will see all kinds of opportunities to travel to Cuba and see for yourself. But we have to take a political stance, and this is the, the concentrated citizen uh, uh, season uh, of, of politics uh, now uh, uh, with these primaries going on. Uh, looking forward to 2024, 2024, uh, the next major presidential election. It is an important uh, battlefront, not the only one, but it is an important one. 
so that within the Biden-Harris administration, which has basically uh, adopted and continued and then to some ways intensified the right-wing authoritarian fascist uh, uh, sanctions uh, by the Trump administration on Cuba, we see some fracture lines within that administration. Just recently, a congressional trip was postponed. I suspect that sometimes in September, October, uh, it will come back on the docket in which Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California, uh, Congressman uh, Meeks, who's head of the Foreign Relations uh, uh, Committee and on the House of Representatives, uh, will travel to Cuba. They have written to the Biden administration and called on the Biden administration uh, to allow food sales to Cuba, uh, uh, expand remittances and uh, freedom to travel to Cuba. We have to take advantage of those fracture lines and mature that reach. Uh, not in uh, full support of who these individual politicians may be in many instances, but in terms of uniting all who can be united at this particular moment to break through this inhumane uh, war that the United States has against Cuba and to be in solidarity with the Cubans as they handle their own internal issues, their own internal debates and contradictions in the context of an extraordinary a development in the course of their revolution and the contributions that they're making to the rest of humanity. So these are a couple of things that we can do is get on the political whistle and force this administration and side with those in, in, in electoral politics who are against uh, these strictures imposed by the Biden administration. Travel to Cuba for yourself. You can find a range of trips, one coming up in February uh, 2023 20, uh, will be busboys and poets uh, uh, putting a stature of Langston Hughes uh, in Cuba. Langston Hughes was a great friend of the Cuban Revolutionary Poet Nicolas Guillén. And so the Cuban people and the Cuban Ministry of Culture uh, with citizens, uh, artists, and cultural workers and dancers and filmmakers and intellectuals and the like, uh, and ordinary people who uh, can take advantage of this trip. So follow us, boys and boys, and see when they're putting out their registry for this trip for 2023. Code Pink uh, is always involved in humanitarian issues with a wide range of, of other groups, the People's Forum, and any number of other groups who are dealing with humanitarian aid to Cuba. Get involved in that and go to Cuba and take a look for yourself. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 
0252-113-20. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Mr. James Early is here. And Mr. Early, at the risk of sounding uh, overly sentimental, it's actually, for me, uh, pretty inspiring and pretty hopeful to see all of these different dynamics and developments um, happening inside uh, Latin America uh, at this movement as we've been discussing this hour, uh, particularly when we're in a moment in the United States where it could be so easy to be uh, given over to despair, given both the worsening material conditions of people in this country and just along with a number of existential threats that are really going completely um, uh, unaddressed and in, in, in a lot of cases, in fact, worsened by these two ruling class parties in the Democrats and the Republicans. But I feel like so much of what we're seeing in Latin America now and even historically really proves about the power of social movements and the ability for the people to really take control, to really take um, the reins, take destiny into their own hand. It's really become a self-determined people by uh, uh, being in power and not shying away from the question of power with all of its inherent, with all of its inherent uh, contradictions and things like this. You know what I mean? And so I want to ask you a broad question, Mr. Earl. I mean, in a moment like this um, on both continents, I mean, what do you think these social movements of the U.S. could learn from what we're seeing in uh, Latin America right now when we talk about this concept of, you know, developing a kind of participatory democracy? Well, a big question, but a very important one. Uh, one of the things that I think we have to keep in mind is that uh, the great majority uh, of the cultures uh, in this American continent from Canada uh, through the Caribbean uh, to the end of Argentina are Spanish-speaking uh, uh, cultures, uh, it's plural, uh, that is. That uh, the historic development of uh, an exploitation of colonialism, capitalist colonialism, uh, in Latin America uh, and the Caribbean in particular, the super-exploitation of those communities uh, have forced all kinds of distortions in the development uh, of their nations and in the uh, protocols of democracy and forced people uh, for economic reasons, for reasons of war, for reasons of instability of gang warfare, uh, reasons of uh, vigilante uh, militaries and vigilante police forces have forced people to migrate from the south to the north, uh, which is characteristic around the world of uh, the southern part of the globe, these agricultural uh, former colonies uh, where people have been uh, forced to move to the industrial societies who were their colonizers. In this context, uh, the right wing has been fearful of the empirical data as they would call it, the Latin Americanization of the United States of America. Well, let us keep in mind that almost half of the country up until the late 1800s, uh, when the United States uh, invaded and took over a great part of Mexico, uh, was Mexico, uh, Arizona, California, uh, Colorado. All of those areas were part of what we would call uh, Latin America in a, in a greater sense. Uh, the number of Brazilians that have left over the last decade uh, despite that almost $2 trillion economy to the U.S., is not really talked about. The faces of migrants are generally talked about as Central Americans. Uh, so that we live in a hemisphere in which the great majority of the people are of 
the uh, Spanish language, cultural or Hispanic uh, background, and that we are saying that there is a new kind of citizenry in the United States. The right wing wants to call it replacement people, the real replacement uh, people are the gentrifiers, not, not people coming from abroad. Uh, we are seeing a, a new kind of um, woman and man in the sense of they know who their grandparents are in Guatemala or in Argentina or in Jamaica or Barbados. Uh, they communicate with them through email, cheap cell phones or more expensive uh, kinds of equipment depending on what their income is here. And what is happening is that the laws of our society uh, in this hemisphere are incongruent with the lived realities of these new transnational people who have loyalties here and loyalties there. Now, that is all centered uh, in the advancement of social movements um, that are organizing citizens to take control of their lives, even control of their lives when they have to leave their countries. So we sh we should be enlightened. We are, there's this big debate here now about the saving of democracy in the United States. Look at what is going on in the most unequal region of the world, which is Latin America, and where civil society is electing new governments that are being responsible to the needs and the aspirations of their citizens. And citizens are demanding collaboration in the formulation of policies, not just to be the recipients of policies in this uh, absurd uh, performative data that we call uh, United States elected officials, particularly at the federal level, uh, where it's broadcast on television and audiences are paralyzed waiting to see what breadcrumb will be dropped from whose table to them, rather than being an organized and active citizen. Now, that's a little over the top because we are also seeing important unionization, for example, here in the United States, uh, as we see unionization throughout Latin America. That is a very significant sign of civil society organizing here in the United States. Black Lives Matter, uh, LGBTQT communities, women in defense of, of their rights uh, to, not to be enslaved, in effect, uh, to be a modern, uh, in, in modern servitude to a male perspective. Uh, so there is much for us uh, not just to learn but to be in collaboration because we live in a fluid a uh, transnational society where the flow of capital and the flow of labor are going across continent, notwithstanding national anthems, national languages, national laws, uh, lived realities are pushing people, and we see those dynamics coming out of Latin America and this part of the world, are pushing us to adjust those laws, to open up these borders, uh, to have free uh, flow of people back and forth, and a new kind of stabilization. So that is what I take away from the dynamics of the organized civil society and the new progressive governance structures that we're seeing in Latin America, and the internal debates in places like Socialist Cuba uh, for the improvement of their revolution. And, you know, I, I have to wonder what that looks like juxtaposed against what is going on here in the United States with whatever this is supposed to be that they keep telling us is a democracy, but I swear it doesn't look like one. I've, I've been to Venezuela and Cuba and, and seen actual democracies and how they work. This is, this is not one of those, but you can't tell that to the democratic party, which, you know, of course there is the need, Mr. Early to, 
to stop the advance of, you know, naked fascism uh, of of the Republican Party. But I, I but I always argue that the Democrats are just kind of, you know, maybe they're maybe they're brunch fascism with more fashionable clothes, but it it doesn't produce. They don't produce any policies that are beneficial to the people, and they're certainly not doing that now, where they're you know spending ten million dollars on an ad campaign to sell the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not going to reduce inflation and is a giveaway to the fossil fuel industries. But but they're spending this money on an ad campaign to convince people that this bill is a good thing. And if it was, they wouldn't have to spend this money to convince people that it was a good thing. But they're also doing it, hoping that people are going to be so energized about this uh, piece of legislation that they're going to go out and say, yay, I can vote for the Democrats again. They finally done something for the people. I mean, only to be let down when they realize that this legislation doesn't really do a lot for the people. So, I mean, what what do you think about the Democratic Party in particular and their I, I guess I don't I don't know what else to call it other than desperation, uh, their desperate attempt to stave off a midterm election wipeout. Um, and and what that means for us building the kind of progressive uh, movement that we need in this country. Well, this system overall, this duopoly of uh, the traditional uh, Democratic Party, the traditional Republican Party, uh, there is no traditional Republican Party anymore. It has uh, been uh, t- uh, totally dismantled uh, into an authoritarian uh, white supremacist Christian nationalist a party uh, that is being very clear that it has no respect for even formal democratic processes of uh, people placing their mark for what they aspire and who they would like uh, to to meet their needs and their and their aspirations. So uh, that party that is gone. We are also seeing then a deep uh, fractionalization uh, within uh, the Democratic Party in which. Uh, the fight against, if you one might say, uh, a a small uh, pink wave, not a pink tide, uh, here in the United States of social democrats, of democratic socialists, are those who are into uh, uh, social democracy policy, although they they may not carry the formal label of democratic socialists. That is a major fracture line uh, within uh, the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is, uh, I think, when, when I talk about these parties, uh, I think we have to divide it into two parts. Uh, that is the political class that runs these parties, the professional class, versus the very diverse social base. Uh, but with regard to the political classes, the professionals that run the Democratic Party, they're in serious trouble. And we have to pay close attention and take people uh, uh, for what they present themselves at sometimes. Uh, the vote for the Biden administration was significantly a vote against Trump. Uh, it did not really address the issue of Trumpism, but it was against uh, uh, Trump. And what Joe Biden called for was a return to normal order, which I understood and I have always stated was a return to the duopoly control of the McCain-like Republican Party um, with the centrist Democrats in their diversity, black, white, brown, LGBTQ women, the same old, same old, in which they try to convince the voters that this is like a sports team. 
you should have a loyalty for Team A versus Team B, although you're not going to get any of the salaries of either Team A or of Team B. It's like my watching uh, the Washington Mystics and rooting for them uh, to win, and I will feel better about it, but I'm not going to get any of those salaries. I'm not going to get any material awards. Uh, I will have this sort of uplift as though uh, I'm spiritually identified, almost as though I'm in a church. Well, this system is in crisis because it cannot deliver. The, uh, the reflections of that crisis are now it cannot even protect itself against these terrorists. So we have these procedural theatrical uh, 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 committees and investigations that go on and on and on. And I was just thinking today. If this was 10 years, 15 years ago, black or brown people talking about threatening uh, to burn down the state house or something, we would be under the jail. Uh, we, we would have been locked up. So there's a crisis here, which means that there is a moment of opportunity for these organized citizens and trade unions, nurses, teachers, uh, LGBTQT women to organize themselves to begin to look to a different kind of governance structure. But we get to that different kind of governance structure by working through the contradictions of this one. So while it is a dire situation that we're facing, I think we have to look for those hopeful little pinheads of light that social movements, everyday citizens are creating and organizing that we can really turn into larger frameworks towards a new enlightenment, to use a, a nice uplifting metaphor, if you will, but I think that is the way the struggle has got to go. We have got to dismantle this Democratic Party by working through it in the way that we have seen the dismantling of the Republican Party of how the right wing have worked through that and dismantled it and is turning it into something else. Yeah, and you know, you made a really interesting point when you talked about how we uh, should learn from the movements of the region, but also be in collaboration with them. I think that's important to know that, you know, we're not talking <clears throat> about people who, you know, are a million miles away from us, either physically or otherwise, that these are, in fact, our compatriots uh, in the hemisphere. And it makes all the sense for us to be in communion and in communication with them. And doing that, I think, requires, you know, the shedding of this uh, imperial hubris that we call American exceptionalism to where we think that we have everything to teach the world and nothing to learn. I mean, this kind of arrogant attitude makes it very difficult to build solidarity, which will be crucial if we're actually going to build the movement to change this society. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Mr. James Early, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.